Good morning, Journey Church. Good to see everybody this morning. I want to welcome all of you out. If you're a guest, especially great to have you with us, but it's good to have everybody in our service this morning. And um, something that I did in first service that I want to, I want to take a moment and do this because I think the church needs to be doing this all over the world. As we all know uh, a little bit about what's going on over in Afghanistan and we hear about the uh, problems about Americans trying to get out, but what we don't hear a lot about uh, is the plight of Christians in Afghanistan. That's one of the fastest growing mission fields in the world, I believe. But uh, the change in government is going to impact dramatically the, the Christians' ability to worship and persecution, and uh, I know it's going to hit. So I'm going to ask if you would to bow with me and pray. We'll pray for all those, uh, our fellow Americans and our, uh, the government, those who are making decisions, but pray for the Christians as well. Father, we just come this morning, and we know uh, that your heart is for your people. Father, we know that we're blessed to live in this amazing country where we have freedom, but there are other places in the world where Christians are forbidden to worship, and when they're caught, uh, they're, even, they're persecuted and even put to death. And Lord, that seems to be uh, the, the way that Afghanistan is going, because there's zero tolerance for other faiths in this country. And Lord, I pray for our fellow Christians, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, who are every bit as real as, as we are, but God, who are struggling and who will face fresh persecution uh, um, because of their faith. I pray for courage and boldness. I pray for protection, Lord, that you would be with them. I pray for all of our fellow citizens and the people of Afghanistan who will be under persecution because of this change. Lord, I pray for our leaders and the decisions they will make uh, that they will be called to, to save those that they can, uh, that, God, you would protect our soldiers who are there, and, uh, Father, that your will might be done. And we trust you in this. We give you all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago when I was writing this message, we were planning a trip to Michigan up uh, around uh, Lake Huron, and uh, we had never been there. We wanted to go up and see um, Mackinac Island, which was... Uh, uh, an interesting visit there. But one thing I wanted to do, I wanted to go fishing on the lake. Uh, I'm not a huge fisherman, but I thought it'd be kind of cool to get a charter and go out there. And so uh, uh, when we got there, though, we tried, and uh, it was going to be like $650 for us to fish for four hours. If you know me, you know it ain't happening. You know, I'm not, not doing that for any amount of fish as far as I know. So we decided, Lord, and I decided we're going we're gonna to go fishing on our own. So we actually got our Michigan license online and and uh, we went and got some uh, uh, bait, and we found a couple of lakes up there. We went fishing. I wanted to, I wanted, we're going to talk about fishing. I want to come out and show you these big fish you were carrying everything, you know. I got no pictures for, I got one picture for you we, because we did catch a little bit. Uh, here, here's the catch that we had right here. <laughs> she caught it twice, I believe. I caught nothing. So there was our Michigan fishing trip. So uh, that's one for the books, all right? But we're going to be talking about that today. You can take that down, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, you know, what I've noticed, though, about fishing is the last few months, there's been a lot of records broken, uh, fishing records. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I'll be, you know, checking out the news, and there'll be uh, such and such fish was caught, uh, broke a record, been held for several years. You know, uh, I think it's happened because a lot of people are getting out because of COVID, and a lot of people are getting lucky, just doing more fishing. Most of us are probably not going to catch a four-pound bluegill, which I think is a new record, or a 22-pound bass. That'd be pretty cool. But fishing is a pretty good hobby, and it's a great illustration that we're going to talk about today. And I think it's interesting now that most fish that are caught in the, and go to the record books 
uh, they are weighed, they're measured, pictures are taken, and then they're released to catch another day or maybe produce more records uh, for the future. But, but in the past, most record fish were probably eaten. You know, that's what people were fishing for, something to eat. And a lot of those fish, so they took pictures, and they measured them, and then they ate them. And uh, that's not true in commercial fishing, obviously. And it wasn't true in Jesus' day as well. well that's the kind of day we're going to be talking about. In, in Jesus' day, fishing was a very common occupation. Uh, they lived near the Sea of uh, Lake uh, Galilee and uh, Gennesareth. Many of Jesus' closest disciples were fishermen. The people that he talked to every day, probably fish, was a big part of their diet. It was a staple in that day, especially living near the sea there. And uh, so that made a great uh, topic and a great thing for Jesus to use to illustrate the kingdom of God. So we're in a series that began a couple of weeks ago called Make Disciples. And we said that a disciple is a follower of Jesus. That it's not just a believer in Jesus. There are many people who believe in Jesus. In fact, most people would say they believe in Jesus, but they are not followers of Jesus. They're not disciples of Jesus. So it's much more that God calls us to. We are to be disciples, but not just disciples. We are called to be disciples that in turn make other disciples. And so we've been looking at how Jesus called disciples, how he made them, and how he taught them to make other disciples. And we said it all began with a simple invitation that Jesus said, come and see. First week of our study, we talked about come and see, that we need to investigate the claims of Jesus. The second week, we talked about following Jesus. We talked about crossing the line of salvation, where you decided you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Jesus. Today, we're going to talk about the third invitation that Jesus gave, and that is to become fishers of men. And we're going to be looking at the book of Luke, chapter 5, to kind of get our our story, our scripture, and if you want to turn, you can, or you can follow on the screens, whatever you wish. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, we know that Jesus' occupation, he was a carpenter, Right? And many people say it was maybe more building with stone and block than it was with, with wood, but, but he was a builder. He was a carpenter, but he lived near the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret, the same name. And many of his friends obviously got their uh, money. Their uh, occupation were fishermen. Now, the account listed here in Luke chapter 5 is in a point in Jesus' life where he was drawing a lot of these people, a lot of crowds, a lot of new people were coming to hear him. A lot of people came every day to come and see Jesus, hear his teachings. They wanted to be fed. There was a perk at one point. Uh, Jesus fed them uh, because they were hungry, and then they were sick, and he healed them. On this particular day, Jesus was standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there was a great crowd of people. Now, to kind of understand Jesus' ministry, there were kind of three phases of Jesus' popularity in that day. The first was kind of obscurity. Nobody nearly knew who Jesus was. He kind of, you know, began in obscurity, and John the Baptist's baptism, his ministry began slow. And then there was a time of great popularity when Jesus was known by everybody. His name was on everybody's lips, and people were coming to hear him and see him and be fed and be healed. And then there came a time of less popularity, a time when the people, because Jesus began to ask them for more of a commitment, they began to kind of fall away, and soon it was basically just his, uh, his disciples. But this account is when Jesus was at the height of his popularity. 
And all these people were coming to see Jesus, and they wanted to hear him. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to be close to him, pressing to get closer to him. And this day, as he was standing near the water, I think he was kind of like almost being pushed into the water. The crowd was on the shore, and, you know, it's maybe a little bit pushing him back toward the water. It says, nearby there were a couple of boats pulled up on the shore. One of them belonged to a man named Simon. We know him better as Peter. And his brother Andrew, they were fishermen. And the other two, uh, the other boat was probably owned by their partners, James and John. And they had been in the lake fishing all night long. And they had beached their boats and they were cleaning their nets and, uh, and kind of wrapping up for, for the day or the night, if you will. Now, on that day, fishing was hard work. Today, um, it can be hard work. But for most people, they enjoy, it's a, it's a sport. You know, it's a, something they do to relax. Uh, but it wasn't true in that day. They worked hard. They used large nets. The nets were probably made out of some sort of fiber, a plant. And so they were, I'm sure they were very heavy. They were fragile. Uh, they probably wore out pretty quickly. They might be as long as 100 feet. They lowered them and they drug them through the water with their boats. Now, the boats of that day were not like our boats, obviously, of the day. They were probably between 25 and 30 feet long about seven feet wide. They could hold 12 to 15 people uh, if it was just used for transport, or they could hold about 1,000 pounds of freight, which usually was fish. Now, what's amazing is a few weeks ago, we talked about how archaeology actually supports the Bible account. It doesn't prove everything, but it does support what we read. And so uh, what I'm going to show you here is an image of a boat that was found on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is approximately what we're talking about today. Uh, it's called the Jesus Boat. It was discovered in 1986, submerged in the mud uh, along the shoreline there, and they carefully got it out, brought it in, and now they've preserved it. The second picture is what that boat would have probably looked like in, in that day when it was new. So it's kind of cool how archaeology has given us visually something that could be 2,000 years old, possibly, we don't know, this could have been the boat Jesus was in that day. So that's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, that we have that. So that was kind of the, the way they fished and, and what they fished out of. The fish they caught were probably tilapia, uh, maybe some sort of carp or a catfish of some sort. And they would sell these daily in the market, and then they would also dry them uh, to, to be able to keep, or they would ferment them to make a fish sauce that the people loved. The Romans especially loved the, the fish sauce, so it was sold all over the Roman world. The habit was they fished at night, just like the scripture just said. And they would drop their nets several times through the night, and then would haul on the oars on these boats to pull them through the water. And by morning, they were exhausted. They were worn out after fishing for several hours. But then when they reached the shore, the work actually began because then they had to clean the nets. They had to wash them and rinse them off. They had to mend them because they were fragile and probably been torn by rocks or fish or sticks or whatever, just handling them. And then they had to dry them and roll them up and store them for the day. And then they had to clean the fish and sell them that if they had caught any, grab a few hours of sleep and do it all over again. Now, that was, <clears throat> that was the life of a commercial fisherman. But this day was different in some way because they had all the work, but they had no fish. They had fished all night and caught nothing. Let me ask, does anybody ever go fishing and not catch anything? Most of you have. The rest of you are great fishermen. You really are. You don't fish, one or the other. Because if you've gone fishing, you've probably caught nothing a time or two. And you know that demoralized feeling like, man, all that effort and time, you're tired and you got nothing at all to show for it. But anyway, these guys were exhausted and discouraged. 
And when Jesus asked them to use their boat, they welcomed him into the boat, probably eager to hear him and some sort of refreshment. Somebody said that maybe the water provided a natural acoustic as well that allowed the crowd to hear Jesus. He's up a little higher in the boat, pulled out a little bit from the shore, and Jesus uh, had a little space from them. We don't know what Jesus said because unlike a lot of accounts in the Scripture, none of the four gospel writers actually wrote down and recorded what Jesus said. Uh, The Scripture earlier said that he was speaking the Word of God, so we know it came from God. We know it was probably about the kingdom of God. And, uh, but the people received it well, and then probably most of them hung out on the shore to see what Jesus would do next. And uh, it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Let down the nets. You know, most of what Jesus said to his disciples made sense. It was not something they'd actually thought about before. You know, the way he brought Scripture to life, the way he, the way he you know, talked about the kingdom of God and the light that he showed on truth. But... So when he spoke, it made sense, but this didn't make sense, not to a person who knew what they were doing for several reasons. First of all, they were exhausted, and they didn't want to go back in the water again. I mean, none of them wanted to go back, unroll the nets, stick them back in the water, take another shot, haul them through the the water. They were tired. They wanted to go home. Secondly, nobody fished during the day. Did you notice they had fished all night? It was night fishing. In the day, the fish could see these nets. They weren't made out of nylon. They were pretty uh, bulky, and they could easily escape, so you really couldn't catch fish during the day. And then thirdly, uh, nobody fished in the deep water. That's what Jesus said. He said, let your your nets down in the deep water. Nobody fished in the deep water. The nets were probably kind of shallow, and they drug them through the shallow water at night And when the fish came in, and that's how they fished in that day. So it was kind of a silly request, and in fact, it would be like you and I saying to a commercial fisherman who had been fishing all night, who had caught nothing, and who was tired and knew what he was doing, and we didn't, say, hey, let's go out and try fishing again. And they wouldn't do it, more than likely. Now, that's what Jesus did to to Peter. And Peter pushed back a little bit, you know. He is a professional fisherman, and Jesus is a carpenter. I can imagine what's going through his head is, Jesus, why don't don't you stick to carpentry, or why don't you stick to preaching and let me do what I know to do best? Peter could have said, you know, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. I'm not doing it. And nobody would have been surprised because that was kind of the personality that Peter had. He was kind of of rude at times. But let me ask you this. Is it ever hard for you to trust God when you think you know better than God? Is it ever hard for you to obey God when God says do something, but everything in you, your experiences, your education, your reason, the logic, what everybody else would do, when it doesn't make any sense to obey God, you think you know better? That's what's going through Peter's mind here. And in fact, Peter pushes back a little bit. He said, Master, we worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. (laughs) But because you say so, I will let down the nets. You know, what I think is cool is that Peter is learning to trust Jesus here. He has seen Jesus. He's listened to Jesus. He's trusted him. He's made at least a a low-level commitment to follow him, and so he's willing to do whatever Jesus says. He goes against everything he knows is true to be obedient to Jesus. Sometimes we have to do that if we're going to be faithful to him. The Bible says, when they had done so, let the nets down, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. 
Remember, these boats could hold about a half a ton, a thousand pounds each, and they were both about to sink. I have this picture of them out there in the water trying to pull the fish into the boat out of the nets. This picture of water lapping over the edge of the boat because they're kind of low in the middle, and they're oaring with all they got trying to get to shore. I think it was, a, it was obviously a miracle. In fact, I believe there were two miracles. I think the first miracle probably happened in the night when they were dragging these nets. What are the odds of dragging a net through water and getting nothing? Probably pretty small. I mean, maybe not a lot, but getting nothing? I think Jesus said, I'm going to set you up. You're going to catch nothing all night, but tomorrow it's going to be different. And so here was the miracle they had from nothing to the greatest catch he'd ever had. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. So Peter, in seeing this, he is humbled, and he knows for sure that Jesus is more than a carpenter. He is a great fisherman, too, but he's also a miracle worker. And he acknowledges he is the son of God. Peter was the first one to really acknowledge that. And he feels too inferior to ever even be in the presence of Jesus. And to be honest, they were a little bit afraid of him too, because anybody with these powers, they weren't sure what he would do next. They knew he wasn't a common man. So Jesus calms them down, says, don't be afraid. You don't need to be upset, but I got a new job for you because of this experience. Recognize the names, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Hopefully you do, because these are the first of Jesus' disciples who are listed, and they are the core of Jesus' disciples and of his group of disciples. They have previously been invited to come and see. They've been challenged to follow Jesus, and they made a commitment, and now they are commissioned to become fishers of men. They are now moving from just believing to actually joining Jesus in the mission. And there is a line that God calls us to cross, not only to believe, not only to follow ourselves, but become part of the mission. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus didn't really ask them to do that. He told them they were. He said, from now on, you will be fishers of men. And they responded to that. The Bible says that they pulled their boats up on the shore. They left them and everything else. They walked away from the biggest catch, I'm sure, that they had ever had. And they also walked away from their nets and their boats and their security and their family. They left everything. You notice what it said? They left everything and followed him, everything that they had known. John and James, their partners, left their family business. They were in with their father Zebedee. Notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, Jesus, are you kidding? We got this catch of fish. We can make a killing in the market with this. We're going to go sell the fish, and then we'll see what happens. They didn't say, we're going to put our boats and nets on eBay, and when we get those sold, we'll be right behind you. You know, we'll catch up. They didn't say that. That's what we would be inclined to do, thinking about the earthly things. They left all, and they followed Jesus. Guys, let me tell you something. The command here. To be fishers of men is not limited to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It is for every believer, and I believe it's one of the most neglected and ignored commands of Jesus. I mean, we all want to be in on following Jesus and believing in him, but we're not so big on being fishers of men. I don't think everybody is called to quit their job unless God leads you to. Some people are, but most of us never think about the responsibility that we have to be, make disciples. 
In fact, a lot of us are still struggling to think about ourselves being disciples, let alone thinking of making disciples. But this is the call that God is putting on our lives. He's telling us, if you are a follower, then you must be a disciple maker. You must be a fisher of men and women, seeking them and saving those who are lost. This is Jesus' mission. He will, and he does call some to be full-time. I've been blessed. I believe I was called almost 40 years ago to be a minister. I've been blessed to be able to do that. But most of the time, we can live the life that God's given us and do his work as well. Wherever we are, as God, where God wants us to be. In fact, I would say that wherever you are in life, God has put you there for a reason. That there are people around you that need to be reached out to, that you need to do it. God's put them in your life for that purpose and reason. We can do it if we're willing. See, Christianity is not just about accepting Jesus and we're good, and then we're going to go to heaven when we die. It is that, that and more, but it's also living passionately for him while we're here in the meantime, in this life, doing work for him. Most of us believe this incomplete, half-hearted gospel that says, accept Jesus and die and go to heaven, but we're living in the middle ground. Thankfully, we don't always die as soon as we accept Jesus. We're living in the middle ground. We've accepted Jesus. We're going to go to heaven one day. But the problem is we're not occupying. We're not fishing. We're not seeking. We're not on the mission that God's called us. And many of us are simply wasting our time because there are millions of people who are lost and going to hell, and we seem to be indifferent to that. We really are. We really are. We're preoccupied with everything else. Who is out there seeking and fishing for the lost? Who's doing that? You know, we say, well, we got people that are professionals, and I'm one of those. I get it, but you can't hire people to do that for you. It's not what God's called us to do. We're all responsible for the mission. And what we do right now in the middle ground matters. It's what Jesus called occupying. It's what Jesus called being a good and faithful servant. And that's what he's going to judge us by one of these days. See, Jesus had a mission. His his missions in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to fish for men. And we have the same mission. We have the same mission as he does. He's given it to us. You know, we look at large corporations and companies and we say, man, they are, they are successful because they are focused. They have a vision and mission-focused CEO who leads the company. But it's not just his mission or her mission that leads the company. It is every employee, every member of the company, their job. The lowest employee, the janitor, has the same mission as a CEO. And that's what God's called us to do and be, that all of us have this mission that we're neglecting. Let me ask you this. What if we put the same effort into seeking the lost, fishing for men, that we put into our career, our job? What if we put the same effort and focus in that? That's painful to think about, isn't it? It gets worse. What if we put the same focus and effort into fishing for people that we put into our hobby and our recreational interest? Now, I don't want to pick on fishermen, but I already am, and we're talking about fishing. But here's the thing. Today's serious hobby fisherman involves a thirty dollars to $60,000 boat and thousands of dollars of tackle to catch a fish and throw it back right? But here's the thing. We could use the same argument for golfing, for our recreational vehicles, 
for our cabins at the lake, our sports and activities, and another other, a dozen other recreational pursuits, including woodworking shop. All right, me too. What if we put a fraction of the time and effort and investment into seeking people who are lost as we do enjoying what we enjoy doing? What would it look like? How much difference could we actually make? You know, I don't think it demands that everybody walk away from everything, although some may be called to do that, not minimizing that. But we've been given the life to live. Can you imagine that God has potentially given you what you have in order for you to use it for his glory and for his mission? What if you used your boat or your RV or your wood shop? Whatever it is, whatever you have, what if you use that for the glory of God? What if you used it to seek and save the lost? Guys, we need to redefine our priorities in life to include Jesus' mission. If you're going to be a disciple, you have to be on mission with him. See, Jesus' mission is your mission and my mission. You are to be, and we are to be fishers of men to lead them to Christ. Now, to kind of help you kind of flesh this out a little bit, what that looks like. Let me give you a couple of ideas and suggestions about the fishing process, all right? Just a couple things I think are interesting. First of all, if you're going to fish, you got to find out where the people are. you got to find out the people who need to be fished for, right? You know, I'm not a big fisherman, and I, <clears throat> I've been on a few boats, but one I was on, they had this really cool thing called a fish finder. Professional boater, hobbyist, they've got these. At one point, you had to kind of wish you were near a fish, but now you can know if you got one of these because it's sonar or something, the technology allows you to literally see the fish, how many fish, how big the fish are, everything. You would think seeing them, you could get them, but they don't always bite. I've found, figured that out. But you go and find the fish, and then you try to get them to bite on the lure, right? Well, here's the good news. You don't have to have a people finder to find lost people. You don't have to have a gadget to look and look at somebody and say they need Jesus because everybody needs Jesus. Everybody who isn't a follower of Jesus needs Jesus, all right? So you don't have to have a technology to figure that out. There are people who don't know Jesus all around you, people in your family, in your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. The problem isn't finding the people who need Jesus. The problem is acknowledging their need and accepting our mission. But you have to find the people. Secondly, you have to bait the hook and cast the net. Fish don't normally jump into the boat. I know I've seen Asian carp, and they do that, and it's weird, but that's not how most people fish, all right? You don't drive down the lake hoping fish jump into the boat. Fish have to be pursued, and we have to put forth some effort. This may be the most difficult part. We all know people who need Jesus, but we don't initiate a spiritual conversation with them. We don't put the line in the water. We don't cast the net. Now, I don't want it to sound like we're manipulating people or hiding our motives of people, but I believe that sometimes God wants us to build relationship with people intentionally to share Jesus with them. That's not manipulating. That's caring about them. And to do that, we have to have two attractive things. What is our lure, if you will? Uh, I don't want to use bait. That sounds bad. But the lure, what do we have? First of all, we have to have an attractive personality. A person is drawn to you before they're drawn to Jesus. People were drawn to Jesus before he could talk to them, right? So a person is drawn to us because we are Jesus to them. They are drawn to us before 
they come to know Jesus. In other words, they have to see something in you that they want before they're interested in hearing what you have to say. So understand that people are watching you, your words, your actions, your attitudes, your kindness, generosity, your patience, your love, or not. Whatever you're showing or not showing, they're watching you. And these are things that draw people to you and give you an audience with people. You have to build relationships with people in order to, to, to be able to present Jesus to them. Secondly, they have to have an attractive presentation of Jesus. We've all heard it say that you may be the only Jesus that somebody ever sees, all right? So if you are the only Jesus that somebody ever sees, what is their perception of Jesus? How do you present Jesus to them? How do you talk and how do you act and how do you represent them? Are you good or are you horrible at that? And are you consistent in presenting Jesus? Do you do it over and over again? You know, some people love to play the short game in fishing. And, and we've probably all done that, especially if you're an impatient person. But here's what they do. They bait the hook, they throw it out, and if they don't get a bite immediately, they pull it in and they go somewhere else and then they go home. That's the short game in fishing, and it doesn't work like that, you know? Fishing of any sort takes patience. You can't rush the process. And the same thing is true in sharing Jesus. You can't just tell somebody about Jesus. You have to live it out in front of them. You have to tell them about Jesus again. You have to have more than one conversation. You are what catches people's eyes first, and then your life opens the door to share Jesus with them because you make Jesus look attractive. You create the interest, a hunger that makes them want to follow Jesus too. And you can do this in a lot of ways, just being a friend, but you can also do it by sharing your story. You know, what I've noticed is that everybody who has ever gone fishing, you have a fish story. It may end with, we didn't catch anything, but you got a story, right? It's an adventure that you went on. And all of us who are believers, we have a story and we ought to tell people that. And it's going to take more than one conversation. Seeing their need, building a relationship, praying for them, presenting the gospel, and then waiting until they're ready to respond to Jesus. Guys, that's the long game in fishing. Just make sure, though, that you don't just sit around and talk about fishing, because that's what most of us do. We know we ought to, and we talk a good game, but we don't ever actually get out there and do it. You have to bait the hook. You have to cast the line. You have to cast the net. Thirdly, catch them before you try to clean them. Catch them before you try to clean them. Doesn't that sound ridiculous, trying to be in there in the water, trying to clean a fish before you get on the, on the shore? You can't do that. Sometimes we try to clean people up before they come to Jesus. We don't expect anything out of them, you know, because they're not believers. We, we should never be surprised when unsaved people act like unsaved people. Never. And we shouldn't be disillusioned when they do because that's who they are, right? Jesus invites us to come as we are, and he will help us get our life in order. People don't get their life in order by themselves, and if they wait, they never make a decision for Christ. Everybody would love to have their life cleaned up, all their issues solved before they become a follower of Christ, but that's what he does after we give our life to him. We can't do it without his power, and there are some things in our lives that we just have no control over. They're beyond our ability to overcome, and only Jesus can do that. And so we shouldn't expect to be clean before we choose to follow him, and we shouldn't expect anybody else to be either. We love people through the process, we bear with them, but recognize the change in their life will come when they surrender their life to Christ, and maybe not before. Trust Jesus to clean them up, and don't give up on them if they don't clean up before they come to know Jesus. 
And I noticed that in the Bible, when people came to know Jesus, it was, it was pretty spontaneous. It didn't have to require them to do a lot just to believe and surrender to him. Number four and last, focus on casting the bait, the net, not how many fish you catch. You don't need to worry about how successful you are at spiritual fishing. Just be obedient. Saving people is not your responsibility. Sharing Jesus with them is. God will draw people to himself through his word. Our job is to get the word in front of them. We are not the lure. The word of God is the lure that we, that we send out to people. It is what attracts people to him. Let him be responsible for drawing people to himself and let the person be responsible for how they respond. We're not going to be a call to give an account for how many people responded to Jesus that we presented, but we will be accountable and responsible for telling them. Don't worry about how many people you've helped save. Worry about how many nets you've thrown, how many lines you have in the water. And by lines in the water, I mean how many people are you talking to now about Jesus? How many people are you offering Jesus to and they could respond? How many lines you got in the water? You can't be a fisherman me unless you're fishing, unless you're out there. Now, there is one part of sharing the gospel that has nothing to do with fishing. It's a great analogy, but not every, no analogy is perfect, right? Here's the thing. You have to ask people to make a decision. The fisherman never asks the fish to swim into the net or take the hook. You might be praying that he does, that doesn't count, you know. You do pray for people, but you have to ask the people to make a, make a decision. You know, I've found that there's a no-pressure way to do that, you know. You put a lot of pressure on ourselves, and a lot of us never even try because we're afraid we're going to fail, we're going to ask a question we don't know, or we're going to be embarrassed, or they're going to reject it. That's not the issue. The issue is you share Jesus. You share Jesus with them, and then you ask them what do you think about it. If they think, I don't want to talk about this anymore, then you talk about fishing. <laughs> you talk about woodworking. You talk about the wildcat. I don't care, whatever you talk about. But if they believe and they want to talk more and ready to make a decision, then you be equipped to tell them what to do. You can lead someone to Christ. You, every one of us, could lead someone to Christ because you've already, if you're a believer, you've been led to Christ. Four things they need to do. Number one, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, repent of their sins. Determine that they're going to cross the line. They're going to give their life to Christ, and they're going to turn their life, turn up their, 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 uh, the path, turn their life away from the past, and they're going to follow Jesus. Three, be willing to acknowledge that. Confess that they believe this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then be baptized to symbolize the washing away of their sins. Isn't it great how it all comes back to the water, you know? And our sins are washed away. And then I leave it in their court to decide what they're going to do with all that. And then sometimes it's hard. you got to be patient to see what they do. But you know what? Jesus has a great plan. It's his plan of discipleship, and it's laid out very clearly in this illustration of fishing. Come and see who Jesus is. Follow him. Become a fisher of men. And then make them fishers of men as well. It's a cycle, a discipleship cycle. How, it's how the world could be one in our generation. But let me tell you what, your life is a story. Your life is a fishing story. It's a trip. Once you've been caught by Jesus, you go and become a fisher of men. And if we ever stop doing that, the church is going to die. So we are the hope. We are the people on the ground level doing the mission. 
One day God's going to ask you about your fishing story. Give an account to God, not only for your response to his word, but how you offered that response to anybody else. Have you ever led anyone to Jesus? And many of us would have to say we have not. But if you have, how long has it been? Are you telling fish stories from the past? Or do you have a moment you can share right now about someone that you have reached out to for Jesus? That's my challenge to you. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a believer, I hope that you're not guilty, but I hope you're convicted. And I hope that God's prompting you and thinking about people you should talk to. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you just heard the gospel presented. How to be a follower of Christ, how to respond to him. And if you want to have a conversation with me about that, I'm going to be up front and I'll be around afterwards. I'd love to do that before you get away. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. I'm going to be up here. Tony's going to be over here. It's an amazing song of worship. But the most important thing you could do in that time is to make sure you're right with the Lord. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, I would love to do it. Let's stand together as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we're humbled because we see not only how imperfect we are like Peter and how inadequate we are, but God, we see how willing you are to use us for your glory and how you've called us into your mission and your work that we are to be fishers of men. Father, we love the analogy. It's neat to think about, but God, help us not to be thinkers. Help us to be doers of your work. And Father, for the people that are in our lives, would you give us the courage to reach out to point them to Jesus. Lord, I pray if there are those here today who need to make a decision, they would have the boldness, a boldness like Peter said, let's get in the boat, let's go. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.